the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you on this very murky Wednesday from Berlin. We're in the past few hours. Temperatures have swallow dived a la Tom Pipcock on the B side of the Col du Galibier. My name's Daniel Freiber. I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast. Very special episode because this week I'm going to be submitting two world tour professionals to an unsparing, uncompromising performance review for their 2022 seasons indeed they themselves will be stripping down in front of the mirror figuratively i must stress and casting critical (laughs) eye over their performances in 2022 as well before we commence the self-excoriation let's meet the victims shall we joining me this week i think from villefranche-sur-mer i think for the first time in a little while it is the man who, should his cycling career derail, will immediately find gainful employment. As a Jake Gillenhow body double, he is the 7-11 slurpy, guzzling, cherry pit spitter extraordinaire. He is also a former Tour de Suisse stage winner and ex-American road race champion. He rides for AG Tour Citroën. He is the Motown maestro from Detroit. Should he ever feel like giving podcasting a lifetime of de- devotion... We'll second that emotion. It is lucky Larry Warbass. And that is a Smokey Robinson and the Miracles Motown reference. Larry, hey how guys. That, that <laughs> yeah. was a good that was a good intro. Uh, I'm doing well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> good to, good many, to be here. Very, <laughs> how very... long did you practice that? Um, well, we'll get to you in a minute, the second guest. I, I should, you should be, have asked before and I could be have done an intro for you. <laughs> mute. Yeah, um, there's going to be a lot of musical... Mm, reference today larry are you ready to assess um criticize perhaps even your performance in 2022 yeah definitely i mean i had a few injuries so i was out for a while and there wasn't a whole lot of performance but i'm definitely ready to uh, assess the season i should stress that it's your performances on the bike your performances on the podcast in the second half of the season were outstanding <laughs> outstanding well, i mean we can assess all performances where are you in the cycling related the uci <laughs> podcast point standings right Okay, before he says any more, um, we're going to get to the second guest. Um, as I said, we, there's going to be a lot of musical references today, and here's another one. In fact, let's allow our second guest to introduce himself through the medium of song. In fact, a rap song. My bike, you're my passion. I love you so much. You look so high fashion. I'm mad of your touch. I spend all my time with my bike just to feel that all is still fine with my racing skills. Yes, as we heard there, his bike is his passion. He loves it, he, she, so much. I don't think those were the lyrics. Um, he hails from a state, Virginia, that gave the world hip-hop luminaries such as Missy Elliott, Timberland and Pharrell Williams, but whose musical legacy has now been desecrated by 10 bars of the 2022 Astana Anthem. In addition to being a budding MC, he's a former baby Giro winner, an adult Giro d'Italia stage winner, a Tour of Utah stage winner. He's ridden for Sky, Cannondale, EF Education, UAE Team Emirates and Astana. He once quoted a price of 7 million euros to interview him before a Vuelta a España stage, but has only asked for a quarter of that to appear on the podcast today. He's the finest grimper or rapper on the Côte d'Azur. It is not Fat Joe, um, another rapper, but Thin Joe Dombrowski. <laughs> <laughs> Finjo, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, you've suddenly become very you suddenly become very bashful and very cagey. You, we couldn't shut you up two wow, minutes ago. after an intro like that. I, I haven't actually... I don't think I've ever watched the Astana rap video in full. Too scared. It's a, I'm a little bit too scared. <laughs> um, the infamous Astana rap video, we might as well, we might as well talk about it now. Um, we were talking about it, in fact, before we started recording today. So the first one in 2021 became infamous. And the brain, the mastermind behind this, I think, was Lawrence de Vriesa, the Belgian rider who, who wasn't at the team last year, was he? No. Um, but his legacy was upheld when it was continued by someone, one of the media relations team. Is that right? Yes. Uh, one of our videographers, along with his father, wrote the lyrics. The and, memorable uh, lyrics. Yeah. How did you feel yeah. when you were given, when you were handed your brief? Well, uh, it started out and they were asking just that I would be a part of it, but I didn't realize I was going to have such a star role. Um, <laughs> their, their excuse was that I was one of very few native English speakers in the team, and it was going to be really difficult for some of the Italians uh, to spit rhymes, if you will. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> did, uh, did that yeah. sort of that, that Virginia hip-hop heritage, you think that may also have played a role? I mean, this is not to take anything away from, I don't know, Alexei Lutsenko, who was also, a, well, he, he also put in a star turn, as we might hear later. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess it's in my roots, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, chaps, you're very much on holiday at the moment. I think you're getting back to riding. I think you've been riding together in the last few days, in fact. But Larry, um, you have certainly been on holiday. You've been to Egypt and your outstanding photography from Egypt and prompted me to do a bit of a deep dive into um, Egyptian monuments, geography, um, um, everything to do with Egypt the other day. I was so inspired by your photography. Just tell have us you ever about been it. to Egypt? No, I haven't. Tell us about I'm your trip. Yeah, I'm glad uh, glad I inspired you. So actually, it was like um, <clears throat> my girlfriend was really, it was kind of like a dream of hers to go to Egypt. And um, so, yeah, we were like, I was like, okay. I mean, I wanted to go to Lebanon. So we made kind of like a deal that like if we went to Egypt, then we can go to Lebanon. Um, because, Why did like, you want to go to any particular reason? for? Yeah, my, my family it has like Lebanese heritage. So it was somewhere I always wanted to go. Because okay. I like the food a lot. So I was like, hmm. you know, might as well check it out. And I heard cool things. Um, so yeah, so we went to Egypt. And actually, I, I really didn't know anything about Egypt before. But it ended up being really cool. And like, um, you know, obviously, you know about the pyramids and stuff like that. But like all of the other temples and tombs and stuff that we saw were really like insane. So... We saw some really cool stuff, even some stuff that uh, didn't post, uh, you know, like found real mummies in the desert one day, just like <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, that was pretty crazy. Uh, so yeah, we, we definitely, um, we saw some cool stuff and yeah, it was really I, fun. I, I guess when people think of Egypt, obviously they think about the pyramids and they think about all the stuff concentrated around Cairo, or certainly I did, but there's yeah, a lot same. There's a lot else to see, isn't there? Particularly if you go, I think, south on the Nile. Yeah, so, so we, um, yeah, I, I was the same like you. I, I knew that there were the pyramids, but I didn't know a whole lot else. So uh, we did, yeah, the pyramids, like the first day we stayed two nights in Cairo um, just to see like the Egyptian museum, which is like kind of like the museum you're supposed to see. And then the pyramids. And then we took a flight down to Luxor, which is kind of like in the middle of Egypt, also on the Nile. And that's where we saw like some really crazy temples. We saw like the temples of Karnak uh, and Luxor Temple. And then like the really famous tombs there. It's called like Valley of the Kings. Mm -hmm. And that's where like, you know, a lot of the really famous Egyptian pharaohs were buried. 
Um, and so those were all really crazy. I mean, everything is like so insanely well preserved and like, you know, like in the tombs, all the painting is like the original paint and stuff. It's really insane that it like, I don't know. It's just like, if we did that today, it would last like 20 years, you know, and here this is like, you know, 4,000 years old and like everything's still there, which is pretty crazy. So, um, that was pretty cool. And then we went down after that, we went down to Aswan at like the bottom of Egypt. So South of Egypt. And we saw some temples down there that were really like on the border of Sudan. And that was also really cool because that was sort of like the most authentic, real place we went. And uh, yeah, you definitely got like a different flavor down there. And that was really cool. So it was a, yeah, it was a sweet trip. Did you find it relaxing? No, I mean, we were like full gas whole. <laughs> I never walked so much in my life. And like, well, yeah. So my, my wife and I had actually, well, we spoke about like, oh, do you want to come to Egypt? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. And uh I ran and passed my wife, but she wanted a more relaxing vacation. So we ended up going to Scotland. Well, Scotland and then Tuscany. Uh, I've been to Tuscany, but Mm. I suppose it was the first time I had really vacationed there. We were mostly around Chianti. Mm. Uh, And then we also did a short trip to Scotland, and we did... Like kind of a road trip, hiking around the. Did you, did you know about the weather in Scotland at this time? Of year? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, but but you know, like this will sound crazy, but uh, the the seasons in Nice are a little bit um, muted. Yeah, it's like a bit monochromatic. Um, <laughs> it's just always sunny. You know? Yeah. So actually, you get tired of it. Yeah, like I kind of was looking for. I felt like it would feel really like cozy you know mm. uh maybe and? like drinking whiskey going for a hike staying in you know little cute hotels it, it was nice it was cool um we were in edinburgh for a couple of days uh at the end i i definitely preferred being on the west coast uh it feels a bit wild um and we stayed in some pretty cool places edinburgh was nice but there's definitely like a little bit of a touristy element um which yeah, I mean, it was nice to see. And then, yeah, Tuscany, Florence did this, that. And then, yeah. This feels like a very good opportunity, a very good moment to give a plug to Lionel Burney's outstanding tour, the Cost series, which has been, where he's been releasing episodes every day. I think it's coming to an end now. I think he's on about stage 10, but getting rave reviews. Chaps, we, we need to talk about some cycling because, I mean, we're yeah. in, we always, in, we always alienate people in the first part of the podcast, but usually it's because we talk about football. Um, so let's get back to the old cycling. Um, not too much news around, but there is a little bit. So let's have our news roundup. Um, it's been a recurring theme over the past few weeks. What has, what is happening with the team formerly known as B&B Hotels, KTM? How does it relate to Mark Cavendish's future? Last week, we said that there was still no news and that was bad news. Today, finally, or in the last few hours, the team's manager, Jérôme Pinot, has broken his silence and admitted that he is still waiting for answers from prospective sponsors about whether they can indeed back the team in 2023. Pinot says that he's waiting for three sponsors or individuals to respond, one on November 21st, another on November 28th, another on November 29th. Should no one come through, Pinot has admitted that the team's future, as he had imagined, i.e. with a bigger budget and, ambi- and ambitions than in previous years, would be under threat. Despite all of this, he has confirmed that Mark Cavendish is still in line to be the team's leader. Um, chaps, uh, end of November... 
Jerome Pinot is talking about giving an answer. That is very, very late, isn't it? Yeah. So I actually, I have a friend in the team uh, and that I spoke with during the Tour de France. And my impression upon speaking with them is that it was already a done deal. Mm. But the, the, the sponsor had not yet been announced. Um, but that was like four or five months ago now. So, yeah, I mean, apparently it wasn't a done deal. <laughs> it's not a done deal. Yeah, I mean, just on Mark Cavendish, I said there that he, well, we believe he's given his word to the team, and their team is certainly, or Jerome Pino is certainly expecting Cavendish to be a part of whatever team there is next year. I did have a bit of contact with Cavendish earlier in the week, and he said that well, there was nothing to report really. Um, it was under control, things were under control. Don't really know what that means, but. Um, there aren't too many, well, we were talking before we started recording about the, the lack of spots still available on world tour teams or high ranking pro continental division teams. I mean, Larry, you ride for AG2R Citroën who ride on BMC bikes. The, the next iteration of B and B to the team that we're talking about was supposed to ride on BMC bikes. You and I had some mm-hmm. contact a few days ago, a couple of weeks ago about the, the eventuality, the possibility of um, maybe BMC placing Cavendish AG2R, but that's a non-starter, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think uh, our team <clears throat> is ready <laughs> for Cav, uh, and maybe Cav's not ready for our team either. But uh, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe it was proposed. I'm not sure, um, but I would be really surprised if it happened. I mean, it'd be cool. I really like Cav, but uh, yeah, I don't really see it happening, But uh, but yeah. I guess it, it maybe was an option that uh, was presented, but I don't know if they have really like the budget or the capability to do that right now. I mean, it's like as as obviously he's one of the best of his generation, um, probably one of the best sprinters in history, or certainly is one of the best sprinters in history. Uh, but it's like sort of one of those funny situations where um, it can be uh if you're big enough it can also be like hard harder not harder but difficult in a way to find a place because you know it's not the money involved well yeah uh so depending on when those negotiations fall within the year um you know because team budgets kind of start like a big pie and then Mm. by november there's like one little sliver left um so depending on the the teams in play what their situation is because there's some teams that probably have let's say more of a kind of open budget depending on if there's somebody really intriguing um Mm. but yeah it's this of course this wasn't on the news agenda today but it did it does apply also to naira quintana um joe no at the risk of asking you to be your team's official spokesperson um, (laughs) no no more news to that effect because Uh, nothing i've heard i mean i I only heard the rumor yeah that's a rumor that's been going around for several months even predating his well his issues with tramadol at the tour de france but but, but can he not stay at is archaea like totally not an option no 
No, that's okay. not going to happen. So, um, yeah, no real rumors about what is going to become of Night Old Man at the moment. Chaps, let's move on. Uh, EF Education first, Easy Post boss. Jonathan Vortis has revealed that Lachlan Morton, Joe, your former teammate, I think, um, is going teammate, to yes. take on the Around the World cycling record, which currently stands at 78 days, 14 hours and 40 minutes, and is held by... Can I ask, uh, what on. does that consist of? Uh, These are good Swimming. questions. Well, 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 but for example, like, uh, what is around the world? I mean, do you go like through China all the way to Western Europe? But for example, you do you also plot, need you, to do Australia? You can plot your own route, but it, it, there's a minimum number of kilometers off the top of my head. It's either 28 or 29,000 kilometers. Could you imagine? But you can plot your own route. I, I believe I was about to say the, it's held by Mark Beaumont, who's a Scot. And I think he started in Eastern Europe, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere. Um, Morton originally intends to go for the record in 2023 but will delay his effort due to the war in Ukraine Walters also said that Morton will hardly race on the road at all in 2023 concentrating instead on gravel events recently Morton and his teammate Mark Padun delivered 13 bikes to Ukrainian juniors this after also raising nearly 300,000 euros for the Ukraine crisis relief fund with a ride from Munich to the Ukrainian border Chats, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Sonny Colbrelli had formally announced his retirement, having not raced since an unstable cardiac arrhythmia caused him to collapse after stage one of the Volta a Catalunya in March. Well, on Tuesday, Colbrelli held a press conference in Brescia to announce that he will continue working with Bahrain Victorious in an ambassadorial role. Colbrelli also told the journalist Enzo Vicenati, this surprised me, that he had briefly considered having his defibrillator removed so that he could continue his career for a couple of years. Really? And then he was going wow. to have it put back in. Finally, though, he said that he had made peace with the idea of never racing again. A couple more bits and bobs, um, bits of contract and transfer news. One of the revelations of the 2022 classic season, Ben Turner has extended his deal with Ineos Grenadiers and is now set to stay with the British team at least until the end of 2026. Meanwhile, not renewing, but still very much under contract at another team, EF Education First. Easy place is Esteban Chavez. The, there had been some inaccurate reports about him potentially From being the keep. I, I saw the that market. this morning, actually. Yes. Um, but they were corrected by his team manager, Jonathan Walters. But, but I have a question is why... I, well, I saw JV poking at... Your former coach? Former coach, yes, <laughs> former boss. Uh, I saw him poking at Lekeep over this, but, but why don't they just state the duration of the contract? Um, Jonathan Walters said that some of the team sponsors prefer them not to disclose really? the, the duration of certain riders' contracts. I also had a... Uh, discussion with the team press officer today it always confuses me chaps you'll be able to help me with this when americans say through 2026 what do you understand by that what does that mean through the end of 2026 yeah okay always yeah to okay. me yes because but, but, the, the, this press this press release the ben turner press release said until 2026 now i understand that to mean it said 2026 though so that means like the end of 2026 100 mm, sure. percent sure yeah 100% in America 99.8% okay. sure this is like that like half seven saying wait they always say like half eight half seven yeah I know spent the last week with Connor uh, and he kept using that term we don't use that like you know we say 7.30 right chaps final bit of news the start of the Ghent six days was marred by a terrible collision involving Stein Steels of Quickstep Alpha Vinyl yesterday he fractured several vertebrae 
And we heard last week that Fred Wright and Ethan Hayter were competing together in Ghent. And of course, it is the last hurrah for local boy and seven-time winner, Ilio Kaiser. Talking of track cycling, my favourite discipline, um, our latest friend special came out earlier this week. It's called Record of Records, and it's about Filippo Ganna's hour record attempt in October. Um, head to thecyclingpodcast.com for info on how to become a friend of the podcast. And in the meantime, here's a little taster, a little teaser from the episode. I think we all know if he gets it absolutely perfect, God, he could smash this out of the park if he gets it perfect. Well, what is, what's smashing out of the well, park? I mean, I don't, I don't want to put a number on it myself, but, you know, I, I just mean as in deliver a perfect performance. If, if, if Filippo can deliver a perfect performance, you know, for sure he, he can do, he can really put, put the record right out there, I think. Um, but it's not easy, is it? Even with a great athlete like him, it's not easy. Uh, so, yeah, fingers crossed. Ganna's relaxed demeanour in the days leading up to the record, including when he spoke to reporters like me on the eve of the big day, revealed no hint of the difficulties that had in fact marred his summer. It's more heavy than normal bike, but uh, it's fast. So, uh Usually in the road, if you think uh, it's, uh, it's more closer, seven kilo, eight kilo, no, nine kilo is a lot, but uh, it's okay. So maybe the first three, four laps uh, is not super, uh, you don't feel uh, super fast, but after five uh, minutes, uh, she flight in the, in the track. So we hope uh, can fly the continuous to four, 55, one hour. About the weight, uh, maybe Pinarello had put inside a lot of love and uh, he's heavy, the love. <laughs> the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors, of course. It's been another big week for Super Sapiens because they've recently launched Super Sapiens version 3.0, which is a big update to the app. Of course, the app is integral to understanding what your glucose levels are doing because it takes the data from the Abbott Libra Glucose Sport Biosensor on the arm and it gives minute by minute insights into your energy levels. And over time, you can use that information to tailor your fueling strategy and get better results. Of course, everyone responds differently to exercise and rest and particularly to different types of food. And the Super Sapien system can help you learn what works best for you. But of course, you can't do that unless you can understand the information that you're being given. And the development of the app is a big leap forward, I think, because it's not only sleeker, clearer and easier to use, it offers both a much clearer at a glance picture, but also the opportunity to take a big deep dive into what's going on, especially with the daily summaries, which show you exactly what your glucose levels are doing over the course of a day. And you can start to see the relationship between nutrition, exercise, recovery and your glucose levels and begin to understand your body inside out. 
by logging each of the day's key events, such as exercise, all your meals and sleep. The app then gives you the information upon which to make decisions because you can see when your glucose levels rush and you can see how long and how often you're spiking above your performance zone and then work out from that which events are causing the peaks and troughs and over time fuel more effectively. Find out more at supersapiens.com or listen to the experts on the Super Sapiens podcast. Astana's my team from Kazakhstan. This my challenge, this my way, my passion, my message, my power, my game, my back on the road, my heart with my team, my goals moving forward, I follow my dream. Well, chaps, we're going to go on with a serious business now. And, well, nothing could be more serious um, to players in there. I'm nervous. Players in there than not your, not your verses, not your rhymes <laughs> in the Astana rap, Joe, but your colleague, Alexei Lutsenko, who I thought was the star of this year's um, Astana rap. But, Joe, you... Well, we're going, to, we're going to talk about your season in this part primarily, but you came into the team um, at the start of the year. And that was one of the mm-hmm. one, that was one of the first things that was presented to you this year. The rap. I mean, just generally. I mean, jo- kind of joking it aside. It was a warm welcome. Kind of, jo- kind of joking <laughs> aside. I mean, it's it's a team with a, a little bit of a. I'm not going to say a, a, a slightly indecipherable image reputation in the sense that it has a very Italian soul. It obviously is backed by Kazakh government, um, a, a Kazakh icon in Alexander Vinokurov. I mean, what did you think you were getting into this year? Yeah, it's been, I would say, culturally interesting. Um, it's probably, well, not probably, it is certainly the most Italian-feeling team I've been a part of, and that's coming off of UAE, which is quite Italian. I think most people would say it's the closest thing there is to an Italian team still in the World Tour Peloton, would you say? It's only in, as regards the star. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I, I, I mean... UAE is becoming more and more international. If you if you looked probably even prior to I joined UAE, like 2018 and 19, it was similarly Italian to Astana is now. But of course, it was sort of born out of the ashes of Lampre. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a funny split of being very Italian and very Cossack. You know, the management is definitely a split of the two. A lot of the the non-management staff is also a split of the two and yeah i'm kind of the (laughs) probably a little bit stick out like a sore thumb as an american there i I don't i think it's been quite a long time since they've had an american i guess the first thing that people wonder about is the uh, linguistically as well i mean how how anglophone or not is it it's not (laughs) (laughs) it is not anglophone (laughs) uh no they i mean certain people for example Fofanov, uh, who's one of the directors in the team, is speaks English very well, speaks great French, um, Italian, obviously Russian. I would say the dominant language is Italian. You know, if you're on the bus, pre-race meeting, all that sort of stuff is in Italian. Uh, interestingly, all the team communication in terms of emails is in English. But if you're on like a WhatsApp group for the race, basically everything's in Italian and then occasionally it breaks into Russian. Mm. Um, convenient but yeah yeah well yeah I'm not getting very far with the Russian but with the Italian I I mean I speak French 
and obviously English, and I so it's French. It's can French understand with a few more vowels and hand gestures, basically. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, but I mean, I can understand everything I need to understand in the race and speak in race radio. And actually, I was assigned a new director for next year as my. Typically, in teams, you're assigned a director who's sort of your point of contact. And uh, we spoke only Italian yesterday. Wow. That's not bad. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize wow. that. Um, <laughs> chaps, well, Joe, we're going to get into the weeds of your 2022 season in a minute. But I, and this theme of, sort of self-criticism, self-assessment, self-assessment is the, or self-appraisal is a better word. I, I was curious to know... <clears throat> I mean, how seriously do you take that? How formally do you do it? Do you measure yourself against maybe goals that you set for yourself, are set for you by the team at the start of the year? I mean, how do you, and then particularly in this period, you know, end of the season, how much did you reflect on whether yeah. you had a good season, bad season, what you needed to improve, what you did well, what you didn't do well? I mean, I think that I definitely not only in this period, but throughout the season, kind of look at how things are going and have gone. I wouldn't say I tend to dwell on it a great deal, or I don't I don't find it productive to dwell on it a great deal, just in the sense that if if you're coming off the back of a great season, it's not like you can kick back and relax going forward. And if you're coming off the back of a, a bad season, then I don't think it's worth overthinking it and just focus on kind of the next year and and what you need to do if anything different to improve on some of the shortcomings of the prior year it probably depends a little bit on a rider's personality and and how they take criticism but i think it is important to kind of have a debrief at the end of the year actually in the next couple weeks i'm meant to have a zoom call with the management just on you know how things went what the plans are for next year um and typically also in the december camp or at least this is how we did it last year is you kind of have like a round table where each rider comes in individually with all the directors the management and you sort of address how things went in the last year what they expect for the next year um things that that you the rider could have done better things that maybe your the coaching staff or directors could have done better in terms of your training or your race program whatever and that can always be you know obviously a little bit daunting when it's like you with you know 15 (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly it's really important to set goals at the beginning of the year and like you know write everything down sort of like yeah plan your season out and then at the end of the year, like go back and reflect on whether you achieved those goals, what you did well, what you did wrong. You, you know, do that. and maybe like break and you write them down. I have in the past, but uh, I would say this year, it. yeah, this year I didn't actually. And that's one thing I used to be coached by Bobby Julik, and he was someone who was like really good about doing this. You know, like he sort of like gave me an outline that I needed to fill out, like at the beginning or before the season. You know, um, so like right now I would do it for. 2023 for example which i probably will do this year um and you just kind of like write down you know your long-term goals your short-term goals and you break it down and then like something i've done in the past is like what do i need to do to achieve these goals you know whether that's like you know train a certain way you know eat a certain way reach a certain way you know like um 
you know, do core training, things like that, work on sports psychology, mental training, um, things like that. So yeah, I think actually like they are really trying to improve um, in that sort of way. But I think to keep up with teams like Jumbo and others, you know, you really have to be working on all fronts, not just the riders. Let's look a bit at the detail. Joe, you're first under the MRI scanner. Um, uh, race days. <laughs> race days in 2022. 68 kilometers raced. 10,924. Best result, 11th. Stage 2 of the Tour of the Alps. Um, I've put a, cat- Not one I've, I've put a category in here. Assists. This was races that your team won when you were present. Um, Superman Lopez won stage four of the Tour of the Alps. Don't know whether you can, mm-hmm. what your contribution was that day. Maybe you'll be able to tell us. Grand Tour started two. You started the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France. Grand Tour's finished two. You finished both of them. Significant breaks, uh, 164 kilometers, stage nine of the Giro d'Italia to Blockhouse. Um, 90 kilometers on stage 14 of the Giro, Torino to Torino. 106 kilometers, stage nine of the Tour de France, egg to Châtel. You didn't start any monuments, I don't think. Nope. And, well, we talked earlier, Joe, before we started recording about how, you know, most people will base their impressions, fans will base their impressions of, of your season or many riders' season just on what they see on, for example, a statistics site, pro cycling stats. And they will come up with a hot take. Um, and a lot of journalists do this as well. Um, the, the sort of TMZ National Enquirer red hot take on Joe Dombrowski's 2022, I thought would be something like Finn Joe turns steady Eddie on aluminium, on <laughs> aluminium anniversary. Do you know what aluminium anniversary is? 10 years. I didn't know that. It was your 10th season mm. in the Pro Peloton. So oh. why did I say that? Steady Eddie. Because, Joe, you you raced a lot of stage races and you finished them all solidly, particularly in the first half, part of the season up until the Tour de France. But let's, let's look. Then it all went downhill yeah, well, from there. Well, Joe, let's well, talk, to, talk to us. Give, give us your hot take on your, on your season, first of all. Then maybe we'll go into a bit more detail. Well, let, let me start first with what the team's expectation was and what my expectation was. Because I, I think that's a good point to start because then you can kind of say, okay, I ticked that box or I did not. So from from early on, the plan was the Giro. Uh, Astana had a plan to send a strong team to the Giro with kind of two GC cards in Nibli and Lopez. And the whole goal of the first part of the year for me was to be kind of the best support that I could be for those guys at the Giro. And then... On a personal side, I suppose this also falls into the, the team's wishes, would be if I could win a stage in the Giro. The plan initially, say from the start of the Giro, was very much GC-based around Lopez. And, you know, there was no plan really for us to go in the breakaway or anything like that. It was really kind of supporting him. But then, you know, we lost him relatively early in the race. And that, with Vincenzo may be a bit more of an unknown at that point. I had a little bit of a free card, which was nice for me because I'm suited to Giro mountain breakaways. I finally kind of started to come into like pretty good shape around Tour of Alps um, prior to the Giro. You know, could kind of see myself climbing with pretty select groups. I thought I was going to be top 10 overall, um, but I actually got docked to, I think, a minute for throwing a bottle two days in a row which I was not aware of, and I contested 
heatedly with the commissaire, but did not win. And in any case, then on to the Giro. Um, I was actually, I felt in really good shape at the Giro. Personally, I wanted to win a stage if that opportunity presented itself. Had things played out differently, maybe for example, like the stage to Blockhouse with more of a gap, I think like I had a pretty good shot at winning the stage. And we lost Lopez quite early, but uh, Vincenzo, you know, he ended up fourth overall. So then the days that the sort of harder mountain days, um, sometimes they kind of assigned me to stay with him. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't show up on the results, but I guess I would have liked to have come away with like a win, but at the same time, I felt that my level was actually pretty good. Probably I'm doing things a lot better than I was five or six years ago. If I were to kind of look at like how I prepare. There, are, There is also an element, and I think Larry can speak to this in, in his review, that to be honest, like in cycling, you also just need a little bit of luck sometimes. You know, it, particularly, for example, if you want to win a stage in a Grand Tour, I mean, you can have incredible condition, but also there's an element of just like, you, you need to be in the right breakaway on the right day, that the breakaway goes to the line, someone doesn't chase behind. You, all, all these things have to kind of come together. And... Um, so you can be in, in a great position to kind of deliver such a result, but at the same time, those things all have to kind of come together in a way that facilitates it. And obviously, like the, the stronger you are, the more likely that, you know, you can put yourself in the position again and again for those things to come together. You know, while, a, a, I mean, if you win um, big once in a season, it can really define your season or even maybe a career. But it, it's not necessarily as to say that one season you did everything right and you were, I mean, you could have been in even better shape other times and it just didn't pan out. Particularly, it, I mean, just depending on what type of rider you are, you know, if GC is probably a little bit more like steady Eddie um, consistent, but then if, if, if you're like a stage hunter, then there's also a large element of chance. Jay, you did the Tour de France for the first time. Um, yeah, that presumably was a nice goal to tick off. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, we came to the end of the Giro, and I sort of had queried what my program was going to be for the rest of the year. I, I mentioned that I would like to do another Grand Tour. Um, I like Grand Tour racing, and it suits me. I, whether it was the Tour of Vuelta, I didn't know. And it had turned out they kind of had a bit of a shortage of riders available for the Tour. So it was pretty much an immediate answer before the Giro even finished that I would also do the Tour. And I, I was quite looking forward to it because I had never done the Tour. Um, obviously, it is the biggest race in the world. And also, quite honestly, for a lot of the population, particularly in the U.S., it's the only race in the world. So, I mean, it's the only, uh, race, that, it's it's the only like, race that Timberland and Pharrell Williams are going to have heard of, isn't it? For example, exactly. Your, you know, your fellow uh, MCs. Yeah. My people. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I felt that from a career standpoint, it was a really nice opportunity, and it was something that I wanted to wanted to do in my career even if having done it once now I, I would for sure love to do it again but i wouldn't say it's my favorite race on the calendar i guess my takeaway transitioning to the latter part of my season um which mostly was the tour is i i don't think it's super easy to manage doing the giro and the tour at your very best condition in both like uh, what i saw is definitely my performance was much better in the giro in the tour when you got to the tour did you feel very fit but not very explosive not very powerful yeah that's a, often something that a people bit, say i don't know i just felt that 
per- perhaps that. And perhaps I could have also managed that period differently. I did race between. I probably could have taken more rest between the Giro and the Tour. Joe, I'm going to ask Larry in a minute what he made of your season, Joe. But um, <laughs> first, I just want to ask you, when you do have your performance review next year, um, when Vino's sitting in front of you, speaking to you in Russian or in other languages you don't understand, <laughs> um, what do you... What does your intuition tell you might be the management sort of, well, biggest criticism of your 2022 and what might they be particularly satisfied with, given that it was your first year with the team? What do you suspect they think? Sure. Well, so I think that they're, at least what they told me around this time last year was that the big goal was to do the Giro and and. They were going to send a strong team and to be a pretty key support rider for Nibli and Lopez. I think uh, how I rode, despite not having much or really anything that I'd be too excited about in terms of personal results, I would say my level um, was pretty good and I, I think I fulfilled that role pretty well. I I don't think it would be a scathing review, so to, so to speak, but I... I the season was was fairly condensed because I did such a, a, a condensed program with Giro and Tour, and after the tour, I actually did only three days of racing. I guess for next year, it would be nice to just be have more personal results in addition to kind of feeling that I can perform well within a team role. Larry, before we get to you, I would like you to don your Alexander Vinokurov rubber mask and pretend you are. <laughs> you are performing the appraisal of your friend and I think, and sometime training partner, Joe, um, his 2022 season. What have you made of it? So, you know, I think um, <clears throat> I think one thing, I mean, Don't I also have him. known Joe for a long time. Don't spare yeah. him. No, I wasn't going, going to. I wasn't going to. <laughs> I mean, I've known Joe for like a really long time. We lived together for like five years when, when I first moved to Nice. And, uh, you know, we train together a lot. We talk a lot. Um, so one thing I would say that's Joe, I feel like sometimes gets, uh, I should point out that Joe and Larry he's are together, motivated. they're sitting together. So if Joe wants to stab Larry with yeah, a pencil, yeah. he can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so Joe always trains well, does everything, you know, hundred percent, whatever, like, you know, trains well, eats well, you know, does button everything, coming. but <laughs> I think this is very common in cycling. You know, certain people like, you know, directors, teams, coaches, whatever, will tell you, you know, you are this, you are good at this, you're not good at this. Um, And then I think riders kind of like let it get into their head and then really believe that after a while, you know, like not Joe, but for example, you know, I have a teammate, everyone tells him he's bad at descending. In the end, if he's alone, he can be an awesome descender, but like, because so many people have told this guy that he's bad at descending, he's bad at descending. You know, like he gets in a group and he can't descend, even though he actually like knows how to ride a bike well. And so I think this is a really big problem, probably not just in cycling, in a lot of sports or other, you know, arenas. But um, I would say another thing, Joe has kind of like in his head, and maybe this is from former coaches or, you know, teams, they say like, you're a better stage racer. You're not a one-day racer, you know? And so I would say Joe probably is capable of doing well in one-day races. But I think, uh, I think, you know, to me, there's no really huge difference between the two. Perry Roubaix, baby. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think uh, Joe could actually perform better in one-day races too. So I think Joe probably could perform better in more races over the course of the year with um, 
those things in mind. So that's what I would say if I was like the team, you know. I would say he, you know, he met the, uh, you know, I guess the, I don't know, the objectives of the team, you know, for the year. But he has more that he could do. Uh, like he's capable of more. That's what I would say. Thanks for your honesty, Larry. And Joe, you can get your own back <laughs> in just a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. Scathing. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. So no musical interlude to play us in for this third part, but it is Larry Warbus's turn to sit on the hot seat Larry, um, your 2022 season, we're going to assess it now after your unsparing and stinting analysis of your friend Joe Dombrowski's 2022. And let's have a few stats to kick us off. Uh, race days, Larry, 37 kilometers race, 6,372. Best you only result. You did 37 race days. Yeah, crash that. Wow. Cra- crashes, COVID, Joe. Um, best result, 13th. Stage two of the Tour des Alpes Maritimes et du Var. Uh, that was at La Turbie, uh, presumably somewhere you know pretty well, Larry. Um, assists. When did teammates win when you were present? Ben O'Connor in stage three of the Volta a Catalunya to La Molina when Larry was present. You didn't start any grand tours, Larry. You did start two monuments, Milan San Remo and Liege Baston Liege. Um, significant breaks, Larry. I, I'm not sure about significant breaks. You maybe can tell us in a minute. I don't know, yeah. Um, the TMZ National Enquirer Red Hot Take. Unlucky Larry's Cruel Summer. Um, another musical reference, Bananarama or Taylor Swift. Take your pick there. Um, Larry, you did have a very unlucky summer um, because you were looking in very good form um, in the spring, weren't you? And then COVID struck. But the kick us off, Larry, with what your general impression is of your 2022 yeah, so I would say, you know, if we look at like results or everything on paper, it wasn't a great year, you know. Um, so that was disappointing because I probably had two of the worst crashes of my career, you know, like um, at the beginning in Liège, I was in that really big crash and I had a testicular lesion and actually later looked like I also maybe fractured my pelvis, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, we only saw that when I fractured the other side of my pelvis later in the year. Um, so yeah, you know, I ended up only once in my career have I had a really bad crash that really kind of like took me out of racing. And that was at the end of 2017 when I crashed in the Vuelta and broke both of my hands. Um, so, you know, I would say in general, in my career, I've been pretty fortunate to avoid, um, a lot of bad mishaps and, you know, it all kind of came crashing down, uh, this year. So that was not ideal. Uh, it was too bad. Um, so what were your goals anyway, Larry? I should have I should have asked you that first of all. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I wanted to have like a good start to the year. Um, I would have liked to get some results personally, like win a race earlier in the year before helping my teammates um, later on. Um, and then my other goal, my other big goal was to do the Tour de France, um, which I did not achieve. And then... Uh, 
Yeah, I think, I don't know. Those were at least my sort of two really big goals this year. Um, well, or like three sort of goals or whatever. Again, and, again, we're talking there in terms very much of tangibles, outcomes. Was there anything in terms of your kind of panoply as a professional cyclist, um, any sort of skill that you were particularly trying to work on, something you needed to improve on or anything in you know, the way you were living your life or yeah. anything on that score that you had set as a big goal? I wouldn't say, no, not necessarily um, big, no, but like I would say normally I usually break my goals into sort of like levels. Um, I would do like outcome goals, so that would be like results, things like that. Um, then I would do, you know, like process goals, which might be, you know, <clears throat> meditate you know, every day or, you know, five times a week or do core training a certain amount per week or, you know, reach a certain weight, um, you know, essentially to have this kind of performance. So um, normally I kind of break that down, but I would say, um, yeah, I guess if I'm going to sort of just go down to my whole season and then I'll break it down after. Mm. But um, I started really well, which is what I wanted to do. I would say in Hovar, I was climbing. I didn't really, okay, yeah, I didn't really have a big result there, but um, on like the hardest day I climbed, was climbing with like the best five, 10 guys. Um, so that was really big for me. Um, you know, I was definitely the strongest guy on my team and I was with sort of like the best climbers in the race and um, I was pretty happy with that even though unfortunately like later in the race it all came back together so didn't get any big result there but uh, it definitely showed me that um, I was capable of climbing with the best and that gave me <clears throat> confidence going you know forward into the next races um, then I would say in Catalonia I was riding really well um, to help Ben O'Connor so that was kind of nice to get in that rhythm um you know, helping my leaders. Um, then, unfortunately, after Catalonia, I got the flu, um, and that kind of knocked me out pretty hard for like a week. And this was after getting COVID, sort of while I was starting the season in like November. So yeah, I, and then I later got COVID in Tour de Suisse. So I had the most sickness and injury out of any season of my career, which was kind of too bad. Um, but yeah, then I came back for the Ardennes after that little flu setback and I was really good um, helping the team I was really there at like the important moments every time I was supposed to be there I did sort of like my job to the T um, and that was really cool you know it really it worked out well for us in Amstel Benoit nearly won the race he lost by you know a tire width and then unfortunately he didn't have like the same result in um, you know Flesh or Liege but you know we did really like we rode awesome as a team and we set him up perfectly and so I would say just up to there, I was really, you know, proud of how it went. And then obviously I had that bad crash in um, Liège, which took me out of Romandy, um, and that was too bad. But at the same time, I actually was going to get put into the Giro um, at the last moment, which the team essentially informed me about um, the night before Liège, which is why I crashed so bad. No, <laughs> uh, no. no. Um, so I wasn't a reserve, and they were going to put me in at the last moment, which... Um, yeah, kind of like took me by surprise. And then since I crashed out of uh, Liège um, and was incapable of riding a bike for a while, uh, that didn't happen. So then, you know, they had that setback, started training again a bit later than I would have liked. Um, missed that racing load from Romandy. And then I went to altitude with the team in Sierra Nevada to get ready for the tour and Tour de Suisse and stuff. Anyway, we had a really good altitude camp. I would say um, I did as 
good of a preparation as I could. And in Swiss, I actually, again, reached probably some of my highest climbing level um, that I have reached. You know, I would say on the climbing days, I was climbing um, among the best, like in the Peloton. Um, you know, on the first big mountain day, I was like the first guy who wasn't in the, you know, front of six or whatever um, of the leader. So I was like the first sort of non-leader guy, you know, there. And uh, I was pretty happy with that because that was probably one of my best climbing performances um, in like a world tour race. So I was nice to see even with sort of like a hampered preparation, I could still get to a really good level. And then unfortunately I got COVID again and, uh, you know, I missed out on selection um, for the tour quite narrowly and, that was too bad, but I was still like sort of proud of how my Swiss went. And that really motivated me for the second part of the year. Um, when I was getting ready, uh, I went back to altitude to get ready for the Vuelta and I went down to Wallonie and yeah, I could feel that I was in really good shape and things were going really well. And I, I was really confident that I was gonna have a good Vuelta. Unfortunately, I crashed the last stage of Wallonie and, uh, broke my pelvis and then missed the rest of the season, even though I thought I was gonna be able to do the last week of racing in Italy, which didn't work out in the end. So it was kind of like, you know, um, I did a lot of preparation for kind of not a whole lot of racing, which was also my team's, um, I guess, critique of my season was that I did a really good job preparing, um, for the races, but didn't really race that much, which again, I can't really say was totally my fault. Um, with my crashes, uh, were a little bit unavoidable and, um, you know, obviously no one ever wants to crash. So yeah, we'll just hope that, um, I'll be able to do good preparation this year and actually do the races and show, um, what I'm capable of. So, um, yeah, I think I definitely probably <clears throat> found out, um, how to be more regular in training this year, you know, with my diet, everything like that. And, uh, so I would say I found like really good balance and equilibrium and I was give really a, consistent. Give us, a, give us a sort of uh, idea of how you, how you did manage to do that. Do you think? I guess I started to, one thing I started to do this year, um, I kind of like took a note out of the Norwegian triathletes, um, playbook uh. and, uh, I started to, uh, measure my lactate a lot. Um, so I started to do a lot of lactate testing, both with my coach and myself personally. And so I really was like controlling my training, um, via like my lactate levels and stuff like that. So trying to be a little more accurate, um, and things like that. So I think that allowed me to sort of accumulate more volume than I have in the past without sort of like, uh, killing myself. Yeah, we've talked to, we've talked about the Norwegian triathletes a few times on the podcast. This, these guys, Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld, who've kind of taken the world of triathlon by storm in the last few months with, um, and these fairly radical methods, which have been introduced by their coach, who I think was a former engineer. Um, they're doing a lot of work with core temperature, aren't they? A lot yeah. of work with lactate. Um, various things which are obviously kind of leaking into well people are paying attention anyway throughout I think endurance sport yeah so yeah that uh that's kind of a bit of a summary of that so anyway that kind of helped me and then just in terms of um like my diet and stuff in the past I always uh would get really really like into it and I'd literally measure everything count every calorie and you know that's really mentally fatiguing and, you know, I guess I would kind of be on this really big um, seesaw where I'd go like totally one way, totally the other way, you know, gain six kilos in the off season, lose six kilos, like coming back and then, you know, like really big yo-yo. Whereas uh, this season I was a lot more regular and I just like, you know, I, I kind of didn't restrict myself that much, which allowed me to just, 
yeah, never have to push too hard one way or the other. And um, I would always reach my good race weight um, without having to kill myself to do it. Um, so I think I just found like a lot more equilibrium. And uh, I would say that actually resulted in sort of more consistent performance over the course of the year. So I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully using that performance uh, in the races um, this next year. So I'm about to hand the meat knife to Joe Dombrowski and give him his say. But I, I was just, I was just thinking there, chaps. I mean, we spoke a bit earlier as well about the sort of opacity, the opaque nature of results for bike riders. For the majority of bike riders, are given jobs that the general public does not know about. Um, you know, we can look down your stats for the year, and and we really can have no well no well-founded substantiated idea of whether it was a good season or not but it strikes me that that may even be the case within your team at times yeah and, with, I, and yeah. on the part of your directors even the directors in the race they don't see a, necessarily a lot of every rider in every race either and presumably they base their impressions of your performance sometimes on what they hear from other riders in the team or I don't know what other I mean factors. also you have to keep in mind that I think a, a big point is is what what does the team want because kind of where the team is within the world tour and you know who their big name riders are where they are in the point standings that all colors what the what the team wants right I, I'll give you an example Ineos Obviously, uh, they're one of the best teams in cycling. They have one of the strongest rosters in cycling. They have, they're among one of the richest, maybe they are the richest team, I don't know, but they, they certainly have no shortage of cash such that they can buy the best riders, right? And in some cases, buy the best riders who maybe they don't have really any results to speak of for themselves during the year but if they do a great job for the role that they've been recruited for that's not the results aren't really the point and you can have some riders that are really valuable in in the way that they can help in a race but also valuable like in terms of their price like financially who maybe aren't really winners right whereas then there are other teams where maybe you fall lower on the ladder of uh, the World Tour ranking, which became, you know, it kind of went from zero to 60 pretty quickly this year. It seemed like, I think because in the last cycle, there wasn't actually enough teams wanting to come into the World Tour for relegation to be relevant. Um, all of a sudden this year, it seemed like there was a lot more focus paid to that, at least for, for teams that were, you know, within kind of striking distance of relegation. Uh, so then... The whole strategy for a team can change in terms of sort of maybe a little more bit of a, a team-oriented goal that is more kind of focused around key riders within a team to kind of broadly like we want guys, even if it's not winning, to be like 6th, 8th, 10th, you know, whatever, just so that we have the points. Even if, even if that means that those riders or other riders in the team are less likely to win. Because quite frankly, often it means that you're less likely to win if, if you race in that manner. So <clears throat> sometimes there's not... Sometimes different teams have different ways of kind of measuring success based on where they are more globally. And also, as you were saying, within a team, it's not always clear what is defined 
as obviously winning races is defined as successful, but then you see teams with riders who don't really get much in the way of results, but they they really value particular riders. So I presume it's also nuanced. There are some teams as well who will base their evaluation of riders more on performance metrics. They will, they'll be more sort of training data driven, data driven, and yeah. you know if they see that your, I don't know, your maximal power's gone up over a year, then they might sort of mm, say, okay, yeah, but I mean, yeah. not not if you're not doing anything in the race, you know. Well, like, that's what I that's, was about to say. Yeah, <clears throat> I would say I like kind of going off of this is like okay. At the basis, like, if you're expected to be a teammate, like, you're expected to do your job, that's, like, the minimum. But I will say no team would ever be disappointed if you get results, right? Yeah. And I would say, like, most teams expect you to, at the minimum, do your job, right? Like, help your teammate. Like, if you're, a, uh, like, a domestique, whatever, like, so, you know, at the minimum, like, my job is to be there with Ben, you know, like, I don't know, up until the last climb or Benoit up until, like, a certain point and put him in the right position at the critical moments in these races but then like on top of that like you know just doing that gives them like okay yeah you met the baseline right but they still would like to see me get a result because they're like okay we know that like you know you have these certain power numbers and values or whatever and the coaches tells us the coaches tell us that you're capable of doing this um but like we haven't seen it in your personal results like as of late so like you know, I think they always want you to perform as well. And and sometimes, you know, I would say some teams kind of, I mean, you know, they ask for quite a lot when, when you know, maybe they sign you for one thing, but then they expect you to do more than that. Um, but, you know, that's how it is. And, you know, um, there's always people knocking on the door. Um, the boss to, is never yeah, happy. <laughs> to do what you do. So um, unless you're like winning everything, like um, they're always kind of hoping for more, right? Mm. Chas, just before we conclude this part, I must give Joe the opportunity yeah. to, to to dig in, break go, down, go. chop up Larry's 2022 season. Well, uh, I think Larry's truncated 22 season was struck by a lot of um, mishap. Obviously, the crash in Liège, the crash uh, in Wallonie. Didn't you? Was this this year that you got run over by the quick step car? I also got hit by the quick step car <laughs> in Brabant's appeal. Well, who, who was actually, driving it was car? Uh, it was Cocard who got hit by the quick step car, who smashed into me, which made me crash into Alphalipe, who also crashed. So at least they took down their own guy too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, speak of another guy who's had like an unlucky yeah. season, Alphalipe. I mean, we say like that cycling probably too much, but um, there is an element of bike racing where. You can do everything right from a preparation standpoint and, and you know, your focus on the race, like you were in position, every, everything. But then, you know, you sometimes you also just need things to click. So I think for Larry this year, it was just probably kind of wrong place, wrong time. I mean, not that like it was his doing being in the wrong place, but, you know, just like uh, crashes happen and that's just an element of the sport. And you kind of have to take that and and roll with it, I suppose. Um, because, you know, at, at some point, as long as you keep plugging away and, and doing things in a good way, and if you show up focused and ready to do your job, then you're not always going to have bad luck. You know, like sometimes things work out for you in a way that you're incredibly lucky. It's the guys that kind of are consistently always working and and giving their best that you know i suppose 
it's that saying you make your own luck, which is probably true to some extent in that if you if you're always pushing and and um, kind of nose to the grindstone, then at some point things work out. Or Larry said that he feels he's been more balanced in his prep. I mean, I've lived with Larry for five or six years. We've raced together since we were under 23s um, and spent a lot of time training together. And I think probably <clears throat> that's something that's true. He's just become a bit more, is general the word? Mm-hmm. I think general. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I think that's a good thing, you know? It's yeah, like yeah. Um, focusing on, well, maybe not focusing on anything too much and just kind of I feel that it's it's easier to maintain your focus if you don't over focus on minutia and you just kind of consistently work but but don't let it um be too mentally draining and as he was saying you know whether it's like just even getting out for other activity non-bike activities going paddleboarding whatever that can be a nice way that your probably probably your aggregate level of focus is actually higher but it's more general like generalized if that makes sense which i think is good so yeah i mean my my review isn't very scathing it's just uh, <laughs> i wouldn't say mine was scathing either the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast and especially for fueling Simon and I as we completed our tours of Scotland visiting the Scottish Football League grounds. The entire Tour de Cost series is online now. Episodes 1 to 13, I think it is, telling the full story of our journey from Gretna to Dingwall. As I say, visiting all of those Scottish football grounds. And, well, the experience was made all the more pleasurable because we never ran out of energy. We never got hungry with one another because our energy levels were kept tip-top because we always had supplies of science and sport products to keep us going. Our bidons were filled to the brim with beta fuel every day. We also had energy bakes and bars in our pockets and energy gels for emergencies. And after the particularly tough days, I made sure that I refueled for the next day with a bottle of Rego before then tucking into a nice big dinner. And I think it made all the difference to the experience to know that we always had supplies at easy reach now you can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com for your race or training use the discount code SISCP25 go to scienceinsport.com fill up your shopping cart and use the discount code SISCP25 now we're just waiting for some inspiration for what sort of cycle tour we should undertake next because Simon and I do want to do something similar in 2023. If you've got any ideas, let us know on social media at cycling underscore podcast on Twitter or email us contact at thecyclingpodcast.com. We'd love to hear any suggestions you've got. Now back to Daniel, Larry and Joe for the rest of the episode. So, Daniel, what did your season look like? That's <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> okay. So you don't have straight, to give us a review. We're going straight in on that. Um... No, I mean it's it's interesting, isn't it? The the whole idea of, of well, of, of first of chopping things up into years, um, when you know we we naturally we have New Year's resolutions and we naturally take this as these as kind of well as an arbitrary slice of time in which we expect certain things of ourselves. Um, but I think the older you get, chaps, the more you realise that. Uh, not as much can be achieved in a year as people imagine and more can be achieved in maybe five years than people imagine so that's what the that's what i try and do nowadays i try and think in 
I try and think in five-year chunks and even 10-year chunks. Okay, Daniel. So how about you give us your five and 10-year goals uh, just so we can get a little uh, <laughs> peer into um, your objectives? Well, I'm not going to get too personal. No, I'm not going to get too personal. And I'm going to actually throw this, but I'm going to bring this okay. back to you guys because... Fine. Um, I, I taught, I talked with Joe about the dis- distinction between outcomes and processes, which you, you know, Larry, you talked about your process goals and I don't really have outcome goals. I only have process goals, but with things like, you know, journalism, whether it be podcasting or, or the other, some of the other work I do, you know, you try to try to improve in make these micro improvements which you probably don't notice in real time but then you know, marginal gains if you will with hindsight with hinds the hindsight of one year two years five years ten years then hopefully you'll reflect on and you'll realize that you are further forward than than you know you were Do you know i think talking about joe and his struggles with russian and italian this is something that you really notice in language learning and particularly mm-hmm. as you get older and your neuroplasticity perhaps isn't what it was, um, and languages are harder to acquire, then you have to take things very low and really stretch out the timeline and realize that, you know, if you keep practicing a language, you'll be significantly better in five or 10 years. But you might also get frustrated at your lack of progress in, you know, six months, a year. Um, and sometimes it's easy to forget how long it took you to acquire certain skills. Um, that it might have taken you, even when your neuroplasticity was at its peak, it might have taken you five or ten years to really acquire uh, a language, for example. I don't know if that answers any okay. part of your we question. We can keep going. <clears throat> but Larry, I mean, it's a, bit too, it's a bit too early to talk about New Year's resolutions and objectives. And you do, you, both of you chaps have said that you still have to have your meetings with your teams in which you will establish your goals. But maybe... Um, taking things outside again taking things outside the realm of results purely results and thinking about the processes and sort of not not personal development goals outside of cycling you don't have to tell me about those you can if you want but in terms of your cycling your repertoire your skills your mental approach is there anything already that you chaps know you need to want to work on and and maybe something that you think and have always thought deep down could unlock a lot of unfulfilled potential in your careers uh i would like to start the season better than i typically have there's been some instances where i've started the season quite well but often i find that i struggle um in the early season races you know like in february and march I don't really know exactly why. It's just something... I mean, a very obvious fag packet explanation, Joe, could it be that at this point in the year you need to train more intensively than you have done in the past? Could, yeah, well... You know, two months out, yeah, yeah. three months out, I mean, out, that I seems know. like the, the obvious answer, but I don't know. I've done, I suppose, a bit of a bit of both, like, you know, really not a lot of intensity over the winter or a lot and had a mix of outcomes. And I suppose that looping back to kind of a review in general is it, it's, it can be hard to decipher sometimes what is working and what's not because there's sort of this X element of like, also sometimes you need a bit of luck or whatever, just things to come together. It's nice to start well. I think any rider will tell you that within a team, it's great if you start the season great because then you 
you get put into the best race program. You're kind of, I don't know, looked upon more fondly. Uh, you get momentum. Yeah, you get momentum. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that, like, uh, for example, this year, I, I mean, I did the two biggest races. So it's not that I didn't have a good race program. It's just that I would, and also this year, I kind of maybe didn't get off on the best foot with, like, crashes and illness. But um, I would just like to consistently start better uh, than I have. And I, that's probably something that in the upcoming meeting, uh, I would talk to the team about, you know, the, the variables that we can control, which is, you know, like training, nutrition, all of that. How can we facilitate having a better start and, and, you know, just leave it to be an open conversation. Cause some teams will even tell you, well, we don't want you like flying in February. If your goal is this. I think there's like a bit also of like, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know if it's bullshit or like, I think the thing is, is like in cycling, we get like these ideas, like if you're going good in February, like you're not going to be able to be good in July. But, I, you know, I think that's something that's changing. Um, you know, you see guys like Von Art or uh, Vanderpool. Okay, maybe he was not as good of an example this year. But like, you know, you can fly from the beginning to the end of the year if you, I guess, do it right. So I don't think like... You know, there are certain teams that are like, oh, you know, don't do too, too much intensity too early. And then there's other teams that are just banging out the intensity the whole winter. So, you know, I don't know. I think like you just have to find out what works for you. And it is funny because like now we've both, you know, been pro for 10 years and like we're still learning and we're still working. Um, but do you think that's also rider in, independent? Like I guess to say, OK, I think every person is different. 100%. Like, for example. But I think you can fly the whole year. But but well, so I have a question like, yeah. That I don't know the answer to. Okay, so Van Art can fly all year. Good thing you have me here because I know. <laughs> so Van Art, maybe he can fly all year. Yeah. But for example, like a, now having been teammates with Nibali, you see, I, I, I don't know how long he was pro, like 17 years or something, but there's very clear times of the year that he's at his very best. And then there's other times that he's a lot more quiet. Yeah. But I don't think that doesn't mean that he's not capable of being good the whole year. I think like... That's just maybe the way he's planned it. Uh, and maybe he has the liberty to be only good for one race or whatever. But I think, like, if he's that capable of being that good for one race, you know, like, he's that capable of being good the whole year, I believe. But because also, when I, when I asked I him about this, we, yeah. so we spoke about this in a training camp, and he said he, he doesn't know that that's sustainable to be good all the year over the course of a career. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Which we'll is see. another point. That's a hard one. Because, yeah. because he said, look at all well, these guys well, flying all year long. And I, I won't point out names, but um, just he said, like, some of them are no longer doing that. You know, it's more kind of like, I don't know if we want to call it classic, but like uh, peaks, let's say. So, I, and I have no idea if... if the, yeah, I mean, that could also be the grizzled perspective of someone who uh, who knows they're on the way out or subconsciously yeah, is very influenced by the, by the fact that they're on the way out. One thing I'm getting from you guys, and it's quite refreshing, is I don't get the sense of mm, the sort of fickleness that one might expect that there is. I don't get the sense that either of you think that or are particularly susceptible to the lure of the quick hack whereby i mean we love these stories in the press i was Ketones. speaking to someone who um recently who was i was i was speaking to someone who works on bike fit and who works closely with michael matthews and he told me this story about i can't remember is what they lloyd? changed in michael matthews handlebars this year <laughs> it is lloyd um and and it was as though it was as though this had completely 
revolutionized Michael Matthews and, and given him back or restored or given him sort of 20% extra. I mean, this is just the way that our kind of brains work as journalists, as sort of storytellers. We love telling these stories, but everyone, and, and I, you know, everyone who does any kind of sport is susceptible to a hack, yeah. to a quick well, fix. To, and, and we all like to believe deep down that there is something that can unlock a lot of latent potential in all of us. It doesn't sound, or it sounds maybe you guys are too yeah. long in the tooth and you've seen too much. You realize that that I, is I not going to happen. I think it can happen if, if something is being done like horribly wrong. The, what I would say is like, that's actually something like Joe was saying how like I'm more general now. I would say probably my biggest fault a lot of my career was I was always searching. And this is something actually I remember like I used to train with TJ Van Garderen a lot. And he told me once like, you know, you focus way too much on the 1% and not enough on the 99. And I think that's probably something that like we are just so like programmed is like we always want to look for like, you know, yeah, the hack or this or, you know, biohacking, blah, 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 ice baths, this, that, the other thing. And like we're always looking for like these marginal gains. Uh, where like when we do that we are kind of like distracted and miss like everything that comes before that you know and uh i think that's something like i've learned over the course of my career kind of is that like you know maybe those things can make a difference but like it's really just doing the basics well it's like what sets you up the best and like you know Doing the basics well can get you to this super high level um, the whole year. And then maybe you can add those tiny little things in. Maybe, you know, that bike fit thing might add like a percent. And this is coming from a guy who's seen every single bike fitter under the planet, you know, like. So, you know, I think that is something like, and you know, it's the same with nutrition. Everyone's looking for that hack, you know, how do you lose like seven kilos in seven days? You know, like uh, we all want to be fooled by that because like doing the basics is hard actually. You know, it's simple, but it's hard. It's like doing nutrition well is so simple, but it's hard to actually do. And I think, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, it's not sexy to do the basics. And uh, so we all want that like little thing, but I think actually we end up missing out those whole uh, first 99% when we do that. Well, chaps, I think that just about concludes the entertainment for today. We could probably talk for hours about hacks in particular. Um, I love this. I love this discussion. I mean, obviously, as cycling has developed and as marginal gains has become more of a mantra, more of a, a sort of uh, a buzzword in cycling. So, at the same time, more and more gimmicks, tools have become available. I mean, you could you could try. And, and pin your hopes on a thousand different potential hacks or quick fixes every year, I suppose. But you probably wouldn't get very far, as you say, Larry. Um, before I go, well, I'll mention Lionel's Tour de Cos again, which has been causing a sensation of late. Um, next week, I think we're going to start our sort of woozy walk towards Christmas with the first in a series of episodes reviewing, well, second, actually, because this has been a bit of a review of 2022. Um, second episode, sort of reviewing 2022. We're going to have something on the team of the year one week, something on the performance of the year another week, and so on and so on. Anyway, that's all still to come. Um, chaps, you've been transparent honest scathing um not too scathing i think you're still friends um i don't know if you're having dinner together tonight i hope that i haven't ruined dinner um so it's been a pleasure and thank you very much and we'll be hearing no doubt certainly from you larry at some point later in the winter and hopefully as well from you i'm here joe um as a little as a little treat we are going to be played out 
Joe, I couldn't resist a third dose of your magnum opus, <laughs> the musical monstrosity known as the Astana rap. But um, I'm going to say good evening and thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, guys. We are rolling pedals for the gold medals. Our job is to win. Astana is my team. We are riding to win and it will be done. Astana is my team from Kazakhstan. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney. Astana is my team from Kazakhstan. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.